forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. I don't know if you've ever been stalked by a book, but it is a common occurrence for me. Suddenly, I will just start seeing a particular book everywhere, or the author's name will pop up in strange contexts, or I'll hear the title again and again. And that's what happened to me with Emile Ferris's My Favorite Thing is Monsters. I was wandering around Europe, and it just happened that I was following in the footsteps of Ferris's European release schedule. So the week I was in Italy was the week it was released in Italian. The week I was in Spain was the week it was released in Spanish, and so on. I was trying very hard to travel light, so the massive, oversized graphic novel never found a place in my suitcase until I landed in Chicago and made a nostalgia trip to Quimby's to stock up on zines and comics. And when I started reading it, I was grateful this book wouldn't leave me alone. It's the story of a 10-year-old girl, Karen, who wants to be a monster, which is probably all you need to know in order to listen to this conversation with the author. And it turns out this conversation has very little to do with the book itself. It is instead about living with art, the gift that ugliness can be, and our shared deep love for Chicago. One of the things that I was first drawn to in this book was your depiction of uptown Chicago. And part of that is because I feel like so much so much of the contemporary Chicago writing is done by these like bros who grew up in the suburbs and these little and so their books tend to be focused on like Wicker Park and Ravenswood and all that kind of stuff. But uptown Chicago is such a unique place and experience. Um, And so I was just wondering, well, what is your connection to Uptown Chicago and why set this book there? Well, when I was, um, you know, I was born in Chicago. And then when I was, uh, my parents uh, moved to New Mexico, uh, among other places, but uh, that's where I spent. New Mexico was where I I spent a lot of time. And so at about the age of six, I came back uh, to Chicago and, uh, was sort of introduced to it. Um, and it was just this really remarkable place, uh, for me. Uh, you know, there was so much history here and in a different way than New Mexico. And, and, uh, my father loved this city so much. It really was his city. And, um, I just fell in love with it. Uh, you know, it was a dark place and there were a lot of things that were very wrong at the time. Um, because it was, you know, the 1960s and there was a great, it was a great deal of social unrest and poverty, you know, in that area. But it was incredibly beautiful and the remnants of its history, you know, as seen in things like the Aragon Ballroom and, and um, you know, the Broadway building and all these other amazing uh, structures and just even the houses um, or the apartment buildings. It, it was so clear that there was this marvelous history that was just, um, you know, sort of sleeping in the city or in that part of the city. And uh, I just, it resonated to me. 
as a palace, you know, but all around me were people in, in a great state of despair, you know, so it's a very strange thing. And also your, your, the, the visits to the art Institute, um, within, within the book and specifically that St. George and the dragon, which I have been that painting I've been obsessed with, um, since the moment I moved to Chicago and went to the art Institute. Um, so I was kind of thrilled that it made an appearance there. So when you were growing up, was that, you know, um, how old were you when you started going to the Art Institute and how sort of, I guess, autobiographical were those um, depictions of the visits to the museum? Well, um, in many ways, very. I mean, I, I started going probably because my parents were uh, students there. I started going before I was even born. And, um, <laughs> you know, so uh, the Art Institute was just this remarkably... Uh, exciting place to me as a child. And I, I was kind of falling into painting from the beginning, uh, you know, not falling, I climbed, you know, but, um, that was one of the paintings that very interestingly was real important for people, um, other kids, because it was one of the few paintings that was highlighted during the tours that most school children would take. So, I mean, I was already very familiar with it and had spent a lot of time in it. You'll have to forgive me. I don't know who's calling me, but somebody. Okay. I think I'll let them go. Um, anyway, uh, so I'd already been inside that painting, and I noticed that my fellow uh, classmates really resonated with it as well. So that was, uh, I, I knew it was special before, and uh, I kind of knew some of its secrets some of its symbolism, you know, because researching the symbolism in, in uh, paintings was something I was very interested in, you know, even as a child. Because um, I just felt like the paintings themselves were, were clues, you know, uh, that they contained information I, I knew I had to have, but I didn't, I didn't know what its significance would ever be. Uh, I, I don't think I researched it with an eye or mind to finding out. Uh, what was your, tell me about your experience with it. Um, well, I didn't, I moved to Chicago when I was uh, 24 and uh -huh. very different um, from your experience. Um, my parents never took us to an art museum my entire childhood. Um, art was just not a part of our existence because they, they weren't interested. My father was a scientist and um, they, they kind of thought it was a waste of time. So it wasn't really until adulthood that I started even understanding how to look at art, I guess. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But I kind of got obsessed with these St. George and the Dragon pieces, um, mostly because I couldn't tell whose side the maiden was on. <laughs> Um, cause she's had, oh, that's cool. She has this kind of like placid, um, serene appearance. She's, she doesn't seem to be afraid of the dragon. Um, and she just seems to be this neutral figure. Um, and so that was, that was, I think the first thing that sort of drew me into that painting. Gosh, that's really an interesting observation. And I think very true. She, you know, I was there just about last week because I had an interview with, uh, uh, wonderful uh, journalist from Quebec. And we went there and, and it did strike me that she was very relaxed, the princess. And I just, I thought, well, this is, you know, 
this is really an interesting thing. And then you're saying that I, I, very interesting to me. And it's also really exciting to me when I hear people say, well, you know, my parents didn't value art and then, you know, but you did. And I'm just wondering, how did that happen for you? I mean, did you, how did that happen? Yeah. I know this is about me, I guess, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm really interested in that. Uh, you know, that decision, is it a decision? How does that manifest? Um, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's a conscious decision. Um, I was always just sort of, as soon as I got out of that house, always just sort of drawn to um, to museums and galleries, even though, and, and I guess there was an element of um, shame is not quite the right word, but awareness of my naivete and how little I knew. And it so it didn't necessarily feel like there was a that element of like, do I have the right to be here? Because I, I have no idea what I'm looking at because I just have zero background in that. And also I didn't go to college. So um, at th- that part of it, that was part of it as well. Um, but um, Gosh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. And you and yet you found yourself there. Yeah. Asking those questions, feeling like you wanted to be entitled to this. It, it really is your birthright, but you didn't know that at the time. No, of course not. It took me, it took me a long time to be able to, you know, even in going with a friend to an art museum to be able to speak anything out loud because I was always terrified I was about to say the absolute wrong thing. <laughs> um, like, and that everybody oh, else had already. <laughs> I, I love you for that. I love you for that because I get that. And I, you know, when I did the book, I, I thought a lot about people who, you know, one of the things that happened when I was in school is that um, I, I met a lot of the guards, you know, and um, they became friends, you know, because I would spend a lot of time, well, in the museum and elsewhere. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that you can talk to them mm-hmm. because really they're the most bored people in the world. You know, <laughs> they're standing in a room and, and they're not allowed to do anything with them. You know, it's a really hard job. They, they really should be on shifts that are like an hour long, you know, because it's, it's almost an inhuman thing to be asked to stand and look at one thing for, you know, four hours at a time yeah. or, you know, be aware it's, it, and on your feet. It's, it's a terribly hard job. So, you know, I, I always like to talk to them in part because I'm grateful that they're doing the job they are, and also because I think they're suffering. But um, one of the things that really impressed me is how often they really, they felt very insecure about saying what they thought about the painting, Mm -hmm. but they had great observations. And I thought, wow, you know, this is really interesting that we live in a country that has deprived our own citizens of uh, the right to their intellect and given them a sense of shame about not knowing things and how could they, how could they have that shame when nothing in their education has allowed them to own their brilliance or their responses to art? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just not part of what we generally do anymore because art has been taken out of the schools, you know, in so many ways. And, you know, I just wanted that to be different. I wanted, I wanted to make the book and talk about art and how important it is in our lives, you know, and, how we can use images as a lexicon for our own feelings and experiences and, and have people feel empowered to experience it without shame, you know, mm-hmm. or without fear. Um, you, 
one of my sort of favorite memories is um, in in Berlin, all the art museums are open on Christmas. Um, because they do Christmas oh, wow. on Christmas Eve. So on Christmas, everything is open. And um, one morning, one Christmas morning, I, I went to the the Contemporary Art Museum and there, were no, there was nobody there. And I walked into the room and it was clearly like the first person who had gotten there this, that day. And there were three security guards like huddled around a Max Ernst painting, like arguing. <laughs> arguing and pointing emphatically at something in the painting. Um, and I wish that I had been able to hear it before. Um, but they scattered, you know, once they saw me walk into the room. But I'm, I've am i always been dying to know what the argument was um, that they were having. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, especially with it being Ernst, you know. And wow. Yeah, that's so cool. I didn't know they did that. But that's just another reason to love the Germans even more, you know. I mean, love... <laughs> They, they love culture so much. And, and uh, you know, I noticed that in Europe that there is such a, you know, devotion to, um, not that not that it isn't, you know, more and more like here in some ways, but I just, there's an appreciation for culture and, and uh, respect. Uh, I remember I was in Spoleto, uh, Italy, a few years ago, and, you know, I was at a symposium and, you know, I was, I was so shocked by something because I was in this group of people sitting at a dining table and the, the mayor of the town was there, you know, and, uh, at one point he turned to me and said, well, what do you think about this as a, as a visual artist? Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God, I, I can't even imagine anybody in the United States who's a politician asking me what I thought <laughs> about anything with respect, you know, with actual respect. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this is a different world. I'm pretty sure you, you know, and then, I, you know, yeah, of course, because they're living with a lot of great art. It's a part of their lives and they understand it. I mean, the common person can explain a common, I, that's a rude term, but the, the, the non-artist can explain to you um, points of interest about famous works that, you know, I think that's really, I, I don't know if that would happen here, you know, so yeah. Yeah, and it also it doesn't have the kind of snobby edge to it. And maybe that's just because they do sort of grow up living around it and it's just sort of part of the culture that it doesn't come from like an educational system of like this is the right and the wrong way to think about or see this thing. So I found when I was living in Europe and just beginning to discover opera, for example, and talking with opera singers and people who worked in the opera and they would ask me my opinion and I would feel self-conscious, but they would just like respond with enthusiasm. And if I got something wrong or if I sort of um, asked questions, they were delighted to be able to talk about it in, in this way that is not, it was not condescending. It wasn't patronizing at all. It was just sort of open in a way that I've never experienced in America. <laughs> I mean, not never, but you know. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's really, I think we're changing in some very good ways. Um, I really think I'm really proud of us. Uh, I'm a proud of the response to the political situation right now. I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of the United States. I'm proud of us, you know, mm -hmm. 
we are taking our own. We're saying, no, you know, this isn't the world we want. This is the world we want. And um, I love that. Uh, but this is part of it. I think making people, um, you know, recognizing and respecting their autonomy and their intellect and, and allowing them to be a part of, you know, this, because it's really for them. You know, I mean, all this culture is, is for people. So to shame them or to make them feel like they don't have the right to have opinions, even if those opinions aren't, you know, maybe yours or whoever's, you know, yeah, that's still great. You know, it's still exciting that, that you had, you know, the guts to voice what you felt and that you were responded to, you know, that way. That's, that's what we need. We need a lot more of that. Um, and so both of your parents were artists, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my father has passed, but my mother is alive, and she's a fantastic artist. I mean, I respect her uh, work oh, maybe as much as anybody's in this world. Uh, she's just supremely gifted, and, and uh, yeah, her work is just stunning. Um, my brother's also an artist, and uh, his work is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, my sister-in-law is an artist and she's very gifted and, uh, they're just, yeah, they're all, they're all artists. My daughter is a writer and she is very gifted. I will say there's times when I read her work and I think, wow, you're better than I was at your age and maybe you're better than I am now. So (laughs) it's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty great though. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? To realize that, uh, that's all there. So then how did you, I mean, this is sort of a vague question, but I've always, you know, people who did sort of grow up in these artistic households or who just had access to these things, like what was it like as a kid sort of, you know, being presented with St. George and the Dragon? Like what did you sort of make of it as, as a child? Well, I wasn't really presented uh, with culture by anybody but, mostly by my father. Uh, he was very, you know, very devoted, uh, to looking at paintings and, um, what did I make about it? Um, I'm not really sure I understand the question. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh no, it's fine. It's just, you know, um, I'm because that whole thing was, um, I did, I just never experienced it or saw it as a child and only came to it as an adult. Like, I'm just sort of wondering what a child, um, sees when they see a painting like that. Um, I mean the, you know, the St. George and the Dragon is probably like a, um, pro child painting because dragons are exciting when you're a kid and even still when you're an adult dragons are exciting but um but yeah I, I i just sort of in a vague way wondering what it was like to just have a sort of easy access to to those worlds uh i you know i think uh, I'm, I'm very lucky that i did have that um and i really kind of want that for all of our children i want them to have that uh, i think it benefited me i think one of the things that happens is that it's like a language that you get to learn and it's all around you. I mean, you know, the visual world is very complex and especially now with so much stimulus visually. I mean, when I was a kid, it was mostly television and billboards and, you know, there wasn't really much else, you know, um, you know, there were, there were print ads and so forth, but 
today people get an awful lot more visual stimulus. I don't know if, you know, I think there's something to be said for being taught to read uh, visual things, to understand, you know, what it means to see something on the right side of the page versus the left, Mm -hmm. what it means to, you know, one of the things I stress in the book is a certain kind of triangulation that causes anxiety. I mean, if you see a very top-heavy triangle uh, leaning to one side, you know, there's a certain subtextual anxiety that you get. I mean, I'm not saying it's explicit. It's just very subtle, and it's meant to excite you, meant to make you say, oh, you know, something could happen here. You know, you um, some, of those, some of those things are things we're not taught to understand. And furthermore, you know, images, especially famous paintings, they serve as a kind of a lexicon, as a, as a kind of dictionary for experiences and, and emotions, um, mystery, uh, color, uh, composition, all these things combined. They're, they're magic. You know, this is a kind of visual magic that once you have a hold of it, you can reference and you'll find yourself, I'm sure you found yourself after your trip to Germany and looking at those urns, I'm sure you've said, oh, you know, there's, you know, you'll read a science fiction book and you'll see his collages in your mind or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it just, these things all combine. And I think this is how we make poets and, and writers and, and, and visual artists. You know, we, we give them all these things and then they make their unique original connections between them. And um, they're richer because of them, you know, in sometimes maybe subtle ways. Uh, but I'm thinking of all the writers who were impacted by visual art and, you know, vice versa. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's what we have to have uh, because we need magicians, you know. And I think this is the time when we are coming to realize that we are under attack, you know. Um, and uh, what we are, we've been under attack for probably our whole history uh, on this planet in some way. And, you know, how does that, how do we get the upper hand? Well, you know, that's a big question. Um, one of the things I really liked about your book um, is the sort of conversation that it's having within it about beauty and ugliness. Um, and I, you have this sort of, you know, Karen, the, 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 the child um, main character uh, is this kind of, you know, wolfy little girl. Um, but it seems like her ugliness um, gives her access to these parts of Chicago and the the families and, and the people and the society that she wouldn't necessarily be able to have if she were beautiful. Um, and that allows her to become like this kind of private detective. And I, and I love that this sort of like um, ugliness giving you like this secret pass into the world. And I was just wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about sort of the use of both beauty and ugliness in, in the book. Well, I think, um, I think, you know, it's really an interesting thing to reject everyone else's ideas about beauty and ugliness. You know, it's, it's something that happens when you're a kid and you realize that, you know, you're standing in the art Institute and, and, um, 
you know, you're looking at a cubist painting or, you know, painting of Dora Maar or, or whatever, and you're just swept away by the beauty in the moment. You can smell the clothes she's wearing. You know, she's crying and you can understand that she's being objectified in this way. And it's, and it's cruel. But at the same time, you're in that room with her. And despite the dispassionate qualities of Picasso, you feel connected to her. And, um, you know, I find it so interesting because, you know, I wanted to create a space in the book where Karen defines her own ideas of beauty. And, you know, as I've been reading about Native American people, I became quite aware of the fact that there was this, um, historically, they have a kind of a, well, I was reading this one book by um, a man whose name I think is Charles Eastman, but his uh, his uh, native name was uh, Ohayesha. And um, he lived, he was born in the 1850s, and he became very prominent. And while reading this book, I really understood a kind of a historical attitudes towards beauty that it it was just very different, you know, and he was positing questions like, you know, here are these people who despoil the most beautiful thing we have, which is this earth. And then they paint pictures and put them up in the national gallery of that exact, you know, you know, these robber barons, you know, they own these paintings of great landscapes of the, of the U S and, and yet they're the very people who are despoiling it to the point where it's not beautiful. It's kind of an interesting thing. And, I think there's an there's a similar attitude um, in response to whatever would be considered beautiful or ugly. I mean, Karen doesn't consider the Wolfman ugly. She doesn't consider vampires ugly. You know, despite the fact that they would meet with that kind of response by most people, she sees them as being very beautiful. But she also sees the connection between all the people she loves, who might not be considered. Um, beautiful in terms of magazines, you know, or movies or whatever, but she sees them as very beautiful. And, and so, you know, I remember standing in the museum and uh, in a classroom group and uh, this was in high school and a girl said, you know, Picasso, I hate Picasso. Everything's so ugly. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really an interesting thing. You know, I can't tell you that you shouldn't think that because, well, of course you should think whatever you think, you know, but, um, wow, you know, it just really was amazing to me. And I realized that perceptions of beauty are really defined by what we are inside, you know, and what we're able to take in and see. And, um, you know, that was true as a small child being in the southwestern landscape in a place where many people would say, well, this isn't beautiful. You know, this is very harsh and this isn't beautiful here. And I could only see how beautiful it was, you know, especially walking on the desert. But there's so many terrible things you find on the desert, you know, whole animals just desiccated and, and only bones and uh, partially buried, and you can see the moment of their death and the way their jaws are. And and in one way, you might find that ugly, but then you look at a Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, and it's not ugly. She's she's showing you that there's an eternity to it that's very beautiful. Or, or your grandmother's hands, you know, 
and you might look at them and think, you know, they're so withered and veiny, but they have all the work of everything she's ever done, every loving gesture, every lunch she's ever made, every wound she's ever bandaged. It's in all of that, in the sinew and the and the bone and the wrinkle and the age spots on her hands. And it's 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 extremely beautiful. And you know, it's it's just that. It's it's allowing things to tell you what they are without deciding what they are, you know? That's how to find beauty. And I love the way that you draw faces in this book. Um, cause I miss, I miss faces with character because like on every TV show, it just seems like everybody's getting just, just more and more sort of like those computer generated, um, you know, what is the, what is the median version of every face blended together? Like <laughs> this kind of like soft, um, um, young and and just no nothing of interest to to look at in in people's faces and and, I, and in movies and in TV and and, in, and even in comic books, um, but especially you know the the faces that are in your book are the faces that I see when I go to places like Uptown Chicago and you know go hang out with right. the day drinkers at the Green Mill. <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, I just went there with the day drinkers at the Green Mill because the French uh, film crew wanted to do go to uh, Uptown, so we went to um, we went to hear uh, uh, wonderful uh, jazz organist uh, Chris. I think it was. Oh, I'm not. I'm gonna get his name wrong. Evans, I think his last name was. But um, and we were with the day drinkers and just so many great characters on the street at Green Mill and um, you know, people who had so much character and weight in their in their presence, you know, in their faces and their demeanor. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And a lot of people wouldn't realize they were surprised that there were day drinkers at Green Mill. <laughs> <you know? laughs> They were surprised that there was great music at, at you know three o'clock in the afternoon at the Green Mill, you know, and and, and it's just it's a city so rich with everything. Um, yeah, I, I think we do lose something there, but I think people are hungry for things that uh, require something of them. I mean, when you give a person a very sanded down, very palatable version of the world. And they and they accept it for a very long time. It's kind of like people eating oatmeal, you know, very bland oatmeal, and and it's okay, you know, it's just enough. It's not going to make life any harder for you. But I think that people create complexity in their own lives because we require complexity. We require mystery. We require it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we fuck our forgive language. I think we mm-hmm. screw our own language, uh, our own our own lives up sometimes because we do require mystery. <laughs> so <laughs> we require difficulty. We require problems that we have to solve. We require discomfort. We we require all these things. This is how we become human. You know. Um. I wanted, so the first time that we talked, we ended up talking a bit about astrology and I wanted to talk to you some more about astrology. <laughs> um, now that we're on the record. Um, and God, you're exposing all my crazy. I'm sorry. Jessica, 
you know, you're, <laughs> it's okay though. It's okay. Everybody knows. I've had many times when I, I've been in a room full of people and I've said, Hey, how many Leos are here? I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I said, oh, cancers, uh, did I say something? You're already crying. And they'll, <laughs> they'll all be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> no, it's, those are my people. It's That's fun. what we do. <laughs> I love your people. Can I just say I love your people and I get your people. I do. Most people I've never, don't get I, You know, my no. daughter's born on the cusp. What? Most people don't get the cancers. It's like, oh, moody disasters. So I appreciate that. But sorry, continue. Well, you know, I had a, my friend's daughter, a granddaughter is named Avery, and she's only two years old. And so, you know, she's a moon child. And uh, I have a little, little friend who lives, uh, she's about two years old. Her name is Ada. And um, she's a moon child too. She's a, she's a cancer. As a matter of fact, I foolishly, I forgot. I didn't, she said, I'm the moon, the queen of the moon. I had told her she was the queen of the moon and, and she remembered because she's very bright. And uh, I didn't understand what she was saying. And she was so disappointed. I said, Oh my God, I'm sorry. I just didn't see you shining with that light of the moon right in that moment. And then she stepped forward and she was shining. She's just a little girl, but you guys have a certain power. And uh, it's very mysterious, and I love it very much. Um, yeah, but I mean, everything, everybody has their beauty in the, in, in, the, or in the pantheon of astrology, right? Every sign has its beauty. And yeah, yeah so many, um, so many of my friends are Leos, like all of my, almost all my women friends are Leos, I swear. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. Well, what's your moon? Uh, Virgo. What's your moon? So is mine. Did we talk about that before? We did. Yeah. Yeah. The the moon and Virgo okay. complex. <laughs> You're, we're so hard on ourselves and we drive ourselves so hard to excellence. It has to be perfect. It has to be good enough. This is a gift. It must be. I mean, I remember as a little kid, I was in New Mexico and I was visiting my cousins and I had been invited to a birthday party and I didn't have a really great gift. So I wrapped it. And I wrapped it and I wrapped it and I turned it into this woman wearing a, you know, it was about four and a half feet tall, <laughs> the present. <laughs> and I turned it into this woman with tissue paper wearing a big lacy skirt and she had a big Elizabethan collar. And I mean, when I brought it to the party, it was the crappiest little, I think it was really shitty, whatever the present was. I can't, I don't even remember if it was like an eraser. Okay. So <laughs> I mean, it was just like the worst present because I had no money, but I turned the present into this like event mm-hmm. and then it became like a photo event. And, you know, all the kids were like, Oh my God, you know, they were really excited when it was being opened. Of course it was like an eraser, but <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was just so, I mean, it might've been a character eraser or something like Mickey Mouse or something. Yeah. I don't know. But the point I guess I'm making is that, you know, that's a Virgo thing to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A Virgo moon thing to do. It's like, we are just so insecure that we have to, we have to give the best thing we can out of ourselves. We just push ourselves for that. And in every moment, and in every moment, yeah, absolutely. It's a crazy. It's. I think it's. Uh, I think Virgo is what they say the sign of the goddess and benevolence. Mm-hmm. But there's also a hypercriticism of oneself that is really. It's really wearing. <laughs> so. Yeah, I have a lot of Virgo. So it's yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Um, how do you feel like? I mean. 
Um, being a Leo, which is supposed to embody the creative spirit, uh, you know, from the get-go, from birth, um, is that, how does that, do you feel like that affects your work? Um, or do you think more of the moon and Virgo of the, I've got to get it right kind of stuff? Like, or do, I guess they, you know, do they work together? Well, I, I find myself loving cats very much because I think I'm a, I'm a Leo born in the year of the tiger. And um, to me, cats are just, uh, they tell us so much and I, I love them. Um, I foolishly and ridiculously, in order to survive, painted them in clothes uh, quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for people as like a, as a business, um, which was ridiculous. And I'm a little bit ashamed of it, but also kind of like, ah, you know, it's out there. Um, how do I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I encounter the arrogance of the Leo and I think I'm grateful for having the Virgo that says, Oh, look, look at your arrogance. Look at your, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and I think it's a naturally important arrogance, but you know, I'm not the typical Leo in some ways. I'm not, I'm not really comfortable in the spotlight. It's been really hard on me. It's been, you know, I'll do it and I'll do the very best I can because of that Virgo, but I'm a person who likes to be away from people Mm -hmm. and not in the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, your book is now being published sort of everywhere. And I was on this, um, a trip through Europe and your book was actually just kind of following me around. Like every bookstore I went to, there was your book in every language. It was so funny. Um, and it was like always in the front window or anything. Um, and yeah, I'm, so you must be having to do a ton of press for that. And, you know, how does that, you know, a, as a writer who has to balance a public life as well, and right now I'm in this phase of not wanting a public self at all. Um, like, Interesting. Yeah, I mean... We have to talk more about that <laughs> privately because that's, that's something I'm really trying to puzzle out. Today is the day that the book comes out in France. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it's really exciting and I was terrified. I, 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 I purposely slept in because I didn't want to go on Twitter and Instagram and see responses to it. Yeah. I mean, I knew there would be and, and I knew it would be a lot. And that always makes me retreat. Um, so I have to go soon to uh, to do uh, things in regards to the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French have the French publisher is amazing and has put so much effort into publicizing the book and and has done the best translation of it that that, that was possible. And um, they have devoted so much to it, and I honor that. I, I'm I'm deeply grateful for that. And at the same time, I kind of feel like there was this moment when I um, was publishing the book and I thought very much about being more like J.D. Salinger, <laughs> not being um, reachable at all. Mm-hmm. And I, um, because, because the number one question was always, well, you know, who are you? You know, where did you come from at 55 to, to make this book? And it'd be, your, you know, your first um, full-length published thing. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I mean, that, that was really, that was a moment for me when I really had to look at my whole life. And, and I would say as women, you know, it just shouldn't be that surprising to anybody. If you grow up in this world, um, 
where, you know, I talk about how when I was in kindergarten, I've said this once before, I think, there were two piles of, did I say this to you? No. It might have been to you that I said it in the last. There were two piles of what our future could be. We had coloring pages. And, you know, for the boys, there was this big stack. You know, it was president and and lawyer and doctor and, and scientist and, and all of these things, you know, that you could be. And for the girls, it was secretary mother, oh my God. teacher, and nurse. There were only really four. Hmm. And, um, you know, the boys had artists. <laughs> and I remember this picture of, uh, you know, them in a beret. I mean, it was really stereotypical. Everything was really kind of cartoony and stereotypical, but the message was there. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, uh, that was when I was six years old. And, you know, why should anybody be surprised if it takes somebody... 55 years to come out with somebody if they're raised in that world, you know, and Mm -hmm. even though it's gotten so much better for women, there's still um, a lot of difficulty and there's still, you know, I've had some really untoward things said to me um, by people, never women, (laughs) never women. It's unfortunately, it's repeatedly been men. And, you know, I don't get angry because I understand that they grew up in that same world and and the things they're saying to me, the things they believe are also things that harness them and, and weight them and destroy them. Um, although they don't seem to be able sometimes to see it. Yeah. Although I've gotten a few apologies. So I know that at some point they do see it or they realize, you know, what they did or what they said to me, but um, it just shouldn't be a surprise to people. And I think uh, also for people, older people, you know, we are in a society that values us based on whether we hold a full-time job and support our families. And, you know, we're not in a society that really rewards us for being different and taking the outsider path and, and developing a big project and bringing it out. You know, that's not really what we, what we reward. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, none of this is, is exceptional. And, and, um, you know, frankly, one of the things that happened while I was thinking about this, and I don't know if I'm going on too long, is that I realized that uh, there was an aspect of uh, abuse that occurred connected to, you know, comics, and that I sort of just put everything away emotionally on that score because of it. And that isn't um, uncommon. You know, the ways that we're thwarted, they're not uncommon. It, It seems to be what happens. So I'm really happy that people are coming up to me at events and saying, because, and I had this happen just recently, I I had done an event at Women and Children First, and this woman who worked there, I won't, I don't have her permission to mention her name, Mm -hmm. but recently she came up to me a year later and she said, you know, we talked and I told you some of my ideas for a story and you were really excited about it. I was, I remember just being amazed at what she was talking. She was about my age and, and, um, she said, now I've started reading all around the city and I'm going to publish this. And I was thrilled. You know, mm-hmm. I thought, well, this is exactly what I hoped would happen. I hoped the book would open the path for people who are my age, especially women, but men as well, who haven't felt that they could bring things out, who have felt like it was all over for them because they weren't this, you know, the vital age of 22. You know, mm-hmm. I want that. I want people to have the pressure taken off of them. And to feel like, well, the world will wait for what you have. Figure out how you want to bring it out. 
have faith in yourself um, and buck the system, you know, whatever it takes. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.